The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you saw my uh, post this week, this is one of those Sundays where we're covering a rather large portion of Deuteronomy. I'll I'll only be reading a section of it this morning, but we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 7, chapter 8, and the first 24 verses of chapter 9. Just to get us caught up, we are now in Moses' second sermon in Deuteronomy. This is uh, his his second sermon that he's delivering to the second generation of, uh, of Israel coming out of Egypt. They are now on the cusp of entering the promised land, and Moses is delivering the series of sermons as a, as a shepherd, a pastor of his people, as he is about to kind of go up on the mountain and die while the rest of the people go on without him into the promised land. In the second sermon, what we've seen so far in chapter 5, we saw Moses begin by giving a, a retelling of the Ten Commandments. If you remember from that sermon, we, we looked at a progression of the Ten Commandments as we see in the preface that God is their redeemer. He says that he is their God who has brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the whole preface to, to the Ten Commandments begins with this great declaration that he is not only just a God, not only the God, but he is their God. He has taken them out of Pharaoh's house where they once belonged to Pharaoh as slaves. And because he has redeemed them out of Egypt, he calls them his own. So the Ten Commandments begins first with the declaration of God as redeemer. And since he is redeemer, as the first commandment shows us, he is the only uh, He is the only God, the only true and living God. Because he is the only true and living God, he alone is to be worshiped. And therefore, he determines how he is to be worshiped, how we are to worship him. And he also determines how we should live our lives before him and others. That's the progression of the Ten Commandments that Moses lays out for the people. And at as chapter 5 kind of uh, ended the last half, they heard the voice of God giving them the Ten Commandments from the mountain. They saw the, the, the fire and the smoke at the top of the mountain, and they were terrified. They were terrified of the voice of God. They were afraid that if they heard any more, they would die. They realized that the, in just hearing the thunderous voice of God, his holiness and, and their sinfulness and they asked Moses to mediate for them then last week we looked at chapter 6 where Moses in fact does step into that role of mediator and he begins speaking to them the the commandments and the statutes of, of God and he gives them what Jesus called the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 4 through 5 he said hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And as he gives them this commandment, which is the greatest commandment, 
he then goes to show them that the, the love of God that has been given to them and displayed to, the, to them, the love of God that has been proclaimed to them and his commandments ought to adorn their lives, ought to fill their household as we, as we looked at just the instructions to children generation to generation. And Moses talked there about the, the danger of apostasy, the danger of, of leaving the God who has redeemed them he talked about the dangers of affluence and conforming to the culture, the, the danger of adversity. And we're going to see some of those same themes, kind of Moses expound upon those a little bit more in these chapters 7 through 9. So as we come to uh, the portion I'll be read this morning, Deuteronomy 7, let me pray and we'll dig in. Father, as we come before your word this morning and we just continue to hear this sermon from Moses, I pray that you would convict our own hearts in it, that you would help us to see your beauty, to see your holiness, help us to, to delight that you are the God who has redeemed us, you have made us your own. Father, I pray that that would sink in. And as we even see in these sermons, the, the continued danger of, of fleeing from you, the, that danger of apostasy, Father, I pray that you would help us to see these things as warnings to us, as the author of Hebrews even uses these as a warning. And Paul and Corinthians, that we would learn from the example that, have been, that has been set before us in the people of Israel. So help us in this uh, section of scripture here to, to see you as great and glorious, full of grace and mercy, to recognize our own place. That you've saved us not because of anything inherent in us, no righteousness of our own, but, but only out of your own mercy have you lavished your love upon us in Jesus Christ. Help us as we come before your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would grant us understanding of what we would read this morning and what we would hear. Help us to believe what you have to tell us and help us to obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 7, I'll be reading the whole chapter. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty, mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will, be, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hands and you shall make, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the, the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to do destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction." Before we dig into these few chapters, I just want to and kind of draw out a pattern of Moses' sermon here to the people. I, I want to address a couple, a couple issues first, just to give us some clarity. One of the first issues is, especially as you read through the Old Testament, especially here in, in Deuteronomy and, and headed into 
Joshua, we, we deal with, the, with God commanding you know, the complete obliteration of these nations that are in the promised land. And it's a couple things that it's important for us to understand. First, we see a, a progression where as the people of Israel are going from the wilderness to the promised land, there's actually instruction to kind of pass through peaceably with the nations that are on kind of this side of the promised land, that are outside of the promised land. It's only those nations who, who turn and attack Israel that they then destroy and, and, and begin to inhabit those lands that are even outside of the promised land. But it's those nations inside of the promised land that God is telling them that they must destroy. And that's a hard, it's a hard pill for us to swallow. How, how could God tell his people to utterly destroy these other nations. It's hard for us to process through those things. But if you saw my, my realm post this week, a few things that's, that are important for us to understand. First, we need to understand God's holiness. When we see commands like this, where we see this command to go and to destroy, we need to understand God's complete holiness. He does nothing wrong. He does nothing sinful. All of his wrath, all of his anger, unlike us, who in our wrath and anger, maybe even in what we might call righteous indignation, even our righteous indignation is oftentimes laced with sin. God's wrath and anger is utterly pure and holy. So when he declares punishment upon these other nations, when he tells Israel to go in and wipe them out, he is, he is not commanding just like a, we sometimes read this and think it's a command of genocide. It is not that. And we'll see in a second, a couple of reasons for that as well. God is saying these are sinful nations. You must go and destroy them. When we, when we see that, we should also understand then our own unholiness. We, we should see those nations that God destroyed before Israel and be able to understand just how corrupt and depraved our own hearts are. That we, like these other nations, are, are people who are deserving of God's wrath. And yet God, through his son Jesus Christ, has spared us Part of God's holy nature is the, is the very fact that he can't overlook sin. And this is one of those things that we rejoice in as we consider Christ's atonement for us is God is not a God who can simply sweep our sins under the rug and pretend that they never existed because he is so holy. His, his righteousness and holiness demands that he punish sin. The only way that we can stand in peace and reconciliation with God is that he has punished our sins and he punished our sins in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 12, 31 tells us a little bit about these nations. In the same sermon, Moses will mention this. 
He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they, these other nations, have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. These nations are practicing human sacrifice. And what's horribly sad in the history of Israel is there's actually times where they do the same thing. In this sermon that Moses is warning the people over and over and over again against going away from God. He says, don't follow after those other nations. Don't follow after their gods. And yet that's the very thing that Israel will end up doing, even taking part in human sacrifices. But it's important for us also to remember that God is a God of patience, a God of grace and mercy. As we know in 2 Peter 3, it says, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. In fact, we've seen already in, in the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, God's patience toward these nations in the land of Canaan as he made his covenant with Abraham and he was telling Abraham, I'm calling you out of this, little, this land of Ur. I'm going to take you to the land of Canaan. He says, but there's going to be a time where your people are, are, are brought out and they're enslaved for 400 years before they can go back into this land. And he, he says this interesting phrase. He says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. He is being patient even with these sinful nations that are in the land of Canaan. Their sinfulness, their iniquity is not yet complete. Another reason we see that this can't be like a, a, a genocide, that he's not targeting certain races, that he says, I have this, this pure race of, Israel, of Israelites and I'm going to punish all those who are outside, all those Gentile nations, which this whole sermon argues against anything inherently special about Israel. In Deuteronomy 7.4, I, I just read it. What does God say? He says, for they would turn you away from your son, uh, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God's anger, his, his holiness is, is focused on sin. He is punishing sin and he tells Israel that he will do the same to them. And he says similar thing in chapter 8. Another point I want to address quickly before we kind of get to the main focus of the text before us. In Deuteronomy 7.12, I just read it. It says, and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. We might read that and, and at first kind of blush, think that God's covenant with them is determined upon their obedience. Now, last week I talked a little bit about this as, as we're trying not to flatten out Scripture too much. God uses Israel as, as a type for us to set, set them up as an example and begging for a more per perfect Israel to come. But Israel's obedience was not 
the basis for God's covenant with them. We saw that already in the preface to the Ten Commandments. He redeemed them out of Pharaoh's house, out of the house of slavery. Even while in Egypt, we know they were worshiping other gods. But the whole argument of these, these three chapters makes it clear that it's not because of anything inherent in Israel. And as chapter 9 will say, it's not because of your righteousness. Still, it's important for us not to just kind of ignore that. It's important for us not to read something like this and, and argue it away. It's their obedience, God is saying, will result in his blessing. He is their covenant God. He is the one who has redeemed them. But he is demanding and calling on them to obey so that he can continue to lavish the blessing upon them. And there is a consequence to Israel's disobedience. As he says, eventually, I'll have to remove you from this land. In fact, I, I love, I believe it's at the end of Second Chronicles where God says, in my patience, I have sent prophet after prophet warning you, calling you back. And finally, I'm having to remove you from the land. And the whole point wasn't simply just to wipe them out, but it's this continued plea for their heart, this continued plea for them to come to him, to see them, to see him as their, their God who's redeemed them. This is Moses' kind of main, main thrust in all of Deuteronomy. And we see it especially here in these few chapters. He is pleading with the people of Israel with their heart to lean to trust on God. God will be patient with Israel through their many failures. Ultimately, as I said, this does point us forward to our need for Christ because as Israel comes into the picture and does fail to keep their end of the covenant with God, the question then looms in all of the, the redemptive history, who can ever perfectly keep this covenant? Who can do it? So Jesus comes along, Christ as, as the true Israel, and he perfectly keeps all of the commandments of God, all of his statutes, all of his rules. And when we are hidden away with Christ through faith, all the many blessings that flow from his perfect obedience come to us as we are called sons and daughters of God, as we inherit the blessings that are his. In fact, much of the, the, the blessings that I just read through in chapter 7 kind of makes me, me think of Isaiah 25 and Revelation 21. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We don't get to that, the end of the story in Revelation 21 and read that and say, ah, it's because of what we did. It's a declaration of what Christ has done for us. 
all those covenant blessings that are ours are only ours because of what Christ has done, being un- us being united with him. We need to remember that as Christians, just like the people of Israel here, we are called to live holy lives. We don't, as Paul says, we don't sin so that grace might abound. I'm just rereading what Victor read for us in, in Titus. Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is language out of, out of Ephesians 2. God, God, does, God doesn't save us because of our good works, but he saves us to good works. Well, as we turn to kind of focus in on, uh, as my dad used to say, the meat and potatoes of this passage, as we focus in on what Moses is, is preaching to the people, the main theme I want you to pull out from this is that we are to listen to the voice of God and not listen to our hearts. Listen to the voice of God and don't listen to your heart. First John 3 John says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. The context there, he's talking about assurance. And there's so many times that we, we doubt God's goodness. We doubt that the, the abundant riches that he has poured out upon us through Christ, we say, yeah, but can that really be? Can it really be such a sweet offering that's completely gracious? How? I know my own sin. Surely it can't be just by grace. And yet John says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. So as Moses is preaching this to the people, he lays out a, a, a pattern for us. where he wants us to understand kind of these groupings in each of these chapters, not to listen to our hearts. Not to listen to our hearts, and he gives this reason, because you are saved not because, and he's going to kind of walk us through a few not because phrases, but instead you need to remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember what he has said. But he begins this whole passage by telling the people who they are. In verse 6 of chapter 7, he says, You are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They are holy. They are set apart. They're not holy in the sense of what I was just speaking about 
God as being perfectly holy, perfectly sinless. They're holy in the sense of being set apart, set apart for God's purpose. They're chosen by him. They're his treasured possession. This is, as we think about assurance and doubt and not listening to our hearts, this is one of the greatest things that we wrestle through, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or us on this side of Christ. We wrestle with trying to really wrap our minds around and wrap our hearts around believing that what God says is true. Our hearts tend to pull us away from from him. So again, this passage gives us you know, three, if you say in your heart statements, these three, if you say in your heart statements are paired with three not because statements. These are paired with calls to remember. And all of these are matched with commands to listen to the voice of God, to obey him. And then the final picture given for Israel is a picture of their own rebellious heart as God, as Moses preaches to them a history of their past rebellion against the voice of God. So as we look at this first grouping at chapter 7, in verse 17, he says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? So in this first section, he, 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 he speaks to this first tug at their heart, this first lie that their heart is speaking to them as they stand back in fear and say, these nations are far greater than I. How could I possibly dispossess them as God has told me? And in this, in this section, in verse 7 of, of chapter 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So as their heart is lying to them to tell them that there's these nations that they're about to go and face in the promised land are, are far greater than they are, God says, no, I've already told you. I've chosen you because you are, or I've chosen you as the, as the fewest of people. I, didn't, I did not choose you because you are numerous. So he says in verses 18 through 21, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember that the Lord your God, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. So whenever your heart tells you, this thing is too great for me, for the people of Israel, it's these nations are too great for us, we can't go in and dispossess them. 
He reminds them it's not because you are a numerous people. It's not because you are a great nation that I chose you. In fact, you need to remember, remember that I am the God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. Remember, not that you are great, but that your God is great and awesome. He says in verse 12, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. So he sets up this picture of them of, of them not, not fainting because of their fear of the nations before them, but trusting in the Lord their God. And he says, and when you obey my voice, I am ready to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing to you. The same pattern continues in chapter 8 as we look at the second grouping. Again, we think we start with this lest you say in your heart statement in verse 17, beware, Moses says, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So it, it, this, it's this whole kind of reversal. And it, it is funny how we are, we are a fickle people like that. How in one breath, one thought, we can say, oh God, I can't do this thing. It's, it's far greater. I don't have the strength to fight against this sin. I don't have the strength to obey you in this way. I'm, I'm just not strong enough. It's, it's a far greater thing than what I am. But then we can quickly say, oh, look at what I've done. Aren't I great? And Moses is warning the people of Israel against this same thing as he says, as God brings you into this land, as he abundantly blesses you with all the things that he is desirous of blessing you with, giving you so much, giving you abundance. He says, in this abundance, don't suddenly say, oh, it's my power and the might of my hand that has gotten me this wealth. The implication there, the, the, the not because implication there is that it is not because of your power and might that you have come into possession of all these abundant blessings. It's because of God, what he has done for you. In fact, that's exactly where he goes in verse 18. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. We often do that with, as we think about the last portion of this sermon that we looked at last week and now kind of Moses ex expanding upon it in this chat in chapter eight, that the power of affluence, the power of possessions that they can have upon us, the power of riches, of desiring these things. It's so often that our hearts, when, when we are in need, that we might maybe even cry out to God 
recognizing that we, we need this thing and, and he so wondrously provides. And then we can be so quick to immediately forget his provision. Immediately, maybe not even, maybe he provides and we don't even consider it as coming from the hand of God. And immediately we kind of step back into that place of comfort and say, ah, look at my, what my hard work did for me. There's, there's a story from my childhood where my, my family was especially uh, poor at the time, so much so that my, my parents drove to church and my mom was in tears because she said, we don't even have enough money to buy food for the fish. Our, our fish is going to die. We can't even provide fish food for our fish. And that Sunday, it's kind of a, a funny story, but that, that Sunday, someone in their church walked up and said, hey, you have a fish, right? Our fish just died. <laughs> so we have all this extra fish food. The sad thing is, is it's, it can be so easy for us just to ignore God's blessing in that moment. And say, oh, great. Got my, got, I got my fish food and we never stop and turn to the one who provided it and say, thank you. Thank you that you are the great provider, that you are the God who cares for me, that you, you care for me so much that you would Kill off, kill off my friend's fish so, so that we, we could see the provision of fish food for ours. It's those little things, but it's, it's something like that that has stuck with my mom for years and years and years of just seeing God's provision even in those small details. And it's so important as God blesses us and he wants to bless us. And he blesses us oftentimes in ways that are difficult for us to perceive because sometimes the blessings that he gives us aren't exactly the blessings we would choose. And yet he gives us these things and it's important for us to recognize that these things are from his hand. So we turn and thank God for his provision. In chapter eight, verses two through five, he speaks about his care for them. He says, you shall remember Another one of these remember statements. Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He points to this, the, the leading of the people through the wilderness for 40 years. And he says, you've got to look at that and see God's care for you these little details that you might have easily overlooked. Hey, these sandals haven't worn out. 
That's amazing. He's cared for them. He pr provided them this thing called manna, a completely new thing. He provided them this, this bread from heaven that they would eat. It was a completely new thing and a completely unique thing because as soon as they entered the promised land, the manna stopped. And the whole point, again, through these three chapters is Moses is pleading with the people not to listen to, the, to, to their heart because their, their hearts are deceitfully wicked, but to listen to the voice of God. So he is able to say, man does not live by bread alone, but, but, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We live by God's decree, we live by his word to us. And in this section, Moses declares both covenant blessing and covenant curse. The blessing in verses six through 10, he says, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. He lays out in front of them this abundant blessing that he is just eager to give them. As we mentioned in, in Sunday school this morning, I've mentioned a number of times before, very much the picture that he is laying out for Israel in the promised land is, is the provision that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave Adam and Eve abundance. He gave them every tree, good fruit for them to eat and enjoy. He says, just listen to my voice because out of all that abundance, there's just this one tree that you are not allowed to eat. But we know the story, Adam and Eve, they saw the abundance that God gave them and yet they said, but I think that might be better. They listened to their heart instead of the voice of the Lord, their God. This is what Moses is laying out before the people. Listen to the voice of the Lord your God. He wants to bless you in this promised land. If you don't listen, chapter 8, verse 19, it says, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Don't listen to your heart. Your heart will lead you away from me. Trust my voice. Trust what I have commanded you. My ways are higher than your ways. Our third grouping in chapter nine, again, this pattern of a command not to say in your heart one thing, 
and the Lord has done this thing for you not because of a certain thing. And he calls them to remember. In chapter 9, it comes at verse 4. It says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust these other nations out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Do not say in your heart that it is because of your righteousness that the Lord has done this thing. Why? Verses, nine, verses 5 through 6 of chapter 9, he says, no. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this, their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of that. I'm punishing the wickedness of these other nations. And I'm using you, not because of your righteousness or your faithfulness, but because of my faithfulness to my covenant promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So don't say in your heart that it's because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. Rather, remember, verse 7, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And Moses lays out this history for the people of Israel of their rebellious heart. Looking at this relatively brief history of him taking them out of the land of Egypt and bringing them after these 40 years in the wilderness to the cusp of the promised land, he recounts the rebellious heart. All these times that they had listened to their heart rather than the voice of God. First, he brings up the, the incident of the golden calf at Sinai. As I mentioned this in this series already, as Moses is on the mountain and the people come to Aaron and they say, we don't even know if Moses is alive. We don't know what's going on. Make us a God that we can follow. And the picture there is that they just want an image of the God who brought them out of Egypt but they, they, they want an, it, an image that they can worship apart from the Lord their God. Sadly, Aaron gives in and takes all their jewelry and melts it down and creates this golden calf. Then he, he, Moses quickly brings up in the sermon a few places where he, he, he mentions Tabera and Massa and Kibroth Hatava. These various places where the people murmured or, or, or complained against God. That rather than as he brought up in chapter 8, these times where as a, a, like a father disciplining his child, God was disciplining them in the wilderness, withdrawing the needs that they had so that they would call out to him. He says, I tested you to see what was in your heart. Because if you had a heart after me, in this hour of need, you would turn to me. 
And you would say, Lord, I thirst. Please provide. Lord, I hunger. Please provide our needs. Instead, they complained and they argued against Moses and against God ultimately. At Tabra, it's an incident where God sends fire from heaven and consumes the outer parts of the camp because they had been complaining against him. At Massa, as we looked at, I believe, last week, this is where they thirsted and, and God provided water from out of the rock. At Kibroth Hatava, this is where they hungered and God, God sent quail. Quail that they could have in abundance. And, and the whole picture of the scene there is exactly what we talked about already this morning. They hungered and God miraculously provided all these quails. And what did they do? Ugh, God who? We got our food. Reminds me of, of Jesus as he's feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. It's the people are following him in droves. It says, he makes a statement at one point. He says, you're just following me because you want a free meal. You're not following me because I'm the long-awaited Messiah, the one who has come, the true Israel, to do all that you have failed to do throughout these many years. You're following me simply because you want your stomachs full. And here in this incident, they... they just devour these quail, quickly forgetting the God who provided it, and God sends a plague upon them. And then, then lastly, in this series of episodes of the rebellion, he, he speaks about their, the generation before them who came to this same place, this brink of the promised land, and God told them, go in and conquer. I've given these nations over to you. And they refused. They refused to take the land. Chapter 9, verse 22, he says, just kind of recounting this, at Tabra also and at Massa and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. The whole point in this sermon, in this section of the sermon that Moses is delivering to the people of Israel, again, is he says, you keep chasing after the desires and impulses of your heart. You keep chasing after what your heart is telling you instead of humbling yourself to hear my voice to hear what I am telling you. And as we saw last week, he says, and what I am telling you, these, these commands, these, these statutes, these rules, he says, they're for your good. Trust me. Don't follow after your heart, but listen to my voice. But you see, the problem here, the problem with the people of Israel is what they needed was a new heart. They needed a new heart. In fact, next time we're in Deuteronomy together in the new year, chapter 10, verse 15, he says, Yet the Lord 
set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as, as, uh, as you are this day, circumcised therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. They needed a new heart. As Moses pleads with them not to listen to their heart, and yet they see this continued rebellion, this long history of their rebellion and stubbornness, they realize that what, what Moses is telling them, what they need is for God to remove this heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh to write the commandments no longer just on these slabs of stone, but to write it on their hearts. As we wrap up this morning, we think about this ancient sermon delivered to these people who are so far removed from us. I, I hope as you heard, you can hear the voice of God calling out to you in the same way. Don't listen to your heart if it's contrary to God's word. Your, the impulses of, of your heart will, will lead you in every which way. Trust the Lord your God. Trust his wisdom. Trust his counsel. Every, you think of the book of Judges, with that repeated refrain, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's exactly what we do in our rebellious state. We, we do what is right in our own eyes. We do what the impulses of our heart are telling us to do rather than listening to the voice of God. We gave, my, my wife and I gave some books out to some of our graduates this year. I, th I think it's, it was called Don't, Don't Be True to Yourself. Is that right? Don't Be True to Yourself. There's, there, there's a message in this, in this part of the sermon that Moses is telling the people of Israel. He's, tell, he's telling them, don't be true to yourself. It is such a lie that our world tells us to speak your own truth, to do what feels right. If this is what seems right to you, then you step in and you do it. And don't let anyone dare shame you by telling you that what you believe is wrong. Don't be true to yourself, is what God says. Don't be true to yourself. Yourself, your heart, will deceive you time and time and time again. Don't give in to it. God is stronger than your heart. Trust him. Listen to his ways. Obey him. Because he only wants your good. If you are in Christ Jesus, he has already given us such abundant blessings and he wants to shower even more upon us. As I said earlier, that in this life, that may not, that may not be in the, in the wealth of this life. It may be in, in things that we don't think, like suffering and hurt. But he says, I am working all things together for your salvation, for those who love me. He says, I'm doing these things for you. And guess what? All, all 
those people like the Pharisees that Jesus brings to our attention in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, they do all these things for the wrong reasons. They do it to be seen by men. They have a heart problem. And they will have their reward here and now. But we don't live for the here and now. If we are in Christ, we live for eternity. He has abundant blessings, more than we can even fathom in store for us. Trust him. He's pleading with us. Moses is pleading with Israel. God is pleading with us through his word. He says, trust me. Trust me. I know what is better for you than your own heart knows. Don't chase after the impulses of your heart. Remember his past and present faithfulness to you. Remember his past and present faithfulness to those around us. Remember his past faithfulness through all the pages of Scripture that he has proved time and time again that he is gracious and merciful, abundant in loving kindness and steadfast love. Our faith isn't based on feelings, the feelings of our heart. That's a hard one sometimes for us to hear. But I tell you this, especially when we're thinking of assurance, if your faith is based on, the, on what your heart is telling you, you will, be one of the, you will be a person who lacks assurance and is always doubting the kindness and loving, the loving kindness of your heavenly father. It's not based on feelings, but it's based on the truth of God. It's based on what Christ has done for us. So we need to listen to his voice. We need to remember that his commands are for, for our good. We ought to trust him. Just to wrap up with the passage again that Victor read, just the, the next portion of it in Titus. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, it's important for us to, to use this time exactly as 
Christ has told us, as, as Paul has instructed us, to use it as a time of remembering what God has done for us in Christ. Kind of a theme so far throughout De- Deuteronomy has been remembering because we are such a forget, forgetful people. We need to remember what God has done for us, his faithfulness to us, poured out to us through Jesus Christ, through his work. That's exactly what we remember as we come to the communion table. We remember that Jesus gave his life for us, that he lived the perfect life of obedience that you and I can never live. The perfect life of obedience that we see in the pages of Deuteronomy, Israel, Israel kept failing and failing and failing time and time again. That we fail time and time again. We needed a perfect mediator between us and God, and Jesus stepped in and did exactly that, perfectly fulfilling all righteousness, and then obeying to the point of dying and at that death on a bloody Roman cross, where the worst thing happening on Golgotha, worse than the nails going through his hands and feet, worse than the mocking Worse than all of that was what couldn't be seen, was the wrath of God pouring out upon his own son, not for any sin that he had done, because he is perfectly righteous, but because of the sin we have done. Paying the perfect price, the perfect atoning work that's required for us to have that right relationship with God where God could declare us righteous. As he said to Israel and he says to us, not because you're righteous, but because of my love for you. I have chosen you. I have called you out to be my treasured possession. Remember what I've done for you until my son comes again. Let's pray and we'll celebrate this together. Father, I pray as we come before the communion table this morning that you would help us with all the doubts that are racing through our minds, all the, all the ways that we know we have been a rebellious people, that we have followed our hearts rather than listening to your word. Help this to be a moment where we come before you and Remember the sweet assurance that can be ours because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to remember the great love with which you've loved us. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we remember the salvation that is ours. That you would help us to quiet the thoughts of our own hearts that would lead us astray from you. To remember that it's not because of anything in us, but only because of what you have done for us. Only because of your love and your divine choosing of us. And help us to be a people who walk forward in obedience to your voice. 
as we long for and anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ again. To reveal us to us that inheritance that awaits us. Strengthen us through these things, through your promises. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.